Uh, okay, good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, so we're continuing the 20 questions thing. And um, I, I, I drew the short straw in terms of uh, how can we trust the Bible? But then as I started to look at it, I realized that um, that talk would only last about three minutes, which I think is a good thing. But then as I started to look at it, the title got extended a lot. And then my brain got really confused. And then I ended up with lots of stuff. And now I'm going to try and communicate it. I'm going to try and do 2,000 years worth of Bible history and why we have the church that we have today in 15 minutes. That might become half an hour. We'll see what happens. But just before that, um, this could go horrifically wrong. I also have, uh, about 10 foot away from me, uh, a specialist RE teacher, which is really intimidating. This, so I'm going to add a caveat. This is the Puffing Book Essex Romford version of 2,000 years worth of Bible history and why we have the church we have today. The reason that we're doing it is because uh, we make a lot of assumptions. Like we go to church and we get taught the Bible, or we give our lives to Jesus Christ, which some of us have done really recently, but we don't actually know why we read the Bible or how this thing came together or how we ended up with churches like we have now. So some people would say, but how come you've got Baptist churches, Redeemer King type churches, Pentecostal churches, Methodist churches, URC churches? Why have you got an ESV Bible? Why have you got an NIV Bible? Why have you got a New King James Bible? Anyone ever ask those questions? Oh no, if no one's asking those questions, the whole thing is pointless. So, <laughs> so really it's kind of just a thing about um, going through that in a way. I'm going to try and give it a bit of wings and try and make it entertaining, uh, sort of. But also, just to say, uh, Dan asked if I've got anything to share. I've got a couple of things to share. Thank you to the ladies for allowing the men to go to the gathering last weekend. We did have a really good time. Well, I would say that because I'll put it on. But it was a really good time. And uh, I think across the weekend we saw an excess of 40 guys make first-time commitments to Jesus Christ. It's really good. Yeah, really good. Uh, as exciting. But other things started happening too. Like uh, we, we obviously use a lot of external contractors. And then we have uh, two catering vans where... Just say this for for the, the sake of the wives, do health food, fruit salad, you know, you know, it's all really good stuff. But um, there is this one small little section that does burgers. And the guy that was flipping the burgers uh, during the final communion service, um, they had, you know, there's a couple of thousand guys, they're singing, there's gospel teaching all that, and comedy and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but he, he heard the gospel across the weekend. So he kind of like walked in on the Sunday morning on the side and he had the thousand yard stare. Do you know what I mean? He was like, he was looking like this. And, and one of the guys collared him, who's a CVM evangelist, collared him and, and said, what's going on? And he said, oh, I've been listening to this. I want to give my life to Jesus. So like the burger flipping guy <laughs> came to flip burgers, got saved. And then he broke bread that morning, you know, but he doesn't know anything about the church or anything. So he's got a, he needs to come to this really, doesn't he? Then he find out about it. And then also um, there was a guy who uh, came to flog us loads of electrical wholesale stuff for next year, for next year's setup. We're going to go for 3,000 guys. So the electrical wholesaler came along. He was sitting at the back looking at the setup, heard the gospel, and he got saved as well. So he was walking around with a thousand yards there. He was like... Coat the flog stuff got saved. So it's really, <laughs> no, he's not going to give us a discount either. His business is business. So, you know, uh, we last one, no? Um, change your life, give us 10% off. So, um, so that was all really exciting. And then another thing happened for me this week when I, I was in um, Tesco last week shopping for food for the staff. 
And as I walked around Tesco, we thought, let's go and buy some toys, you know, to play in the field stuff. And, and they were selling Fifty Shades next to children's toys. You know, next to, you know, the Fifty Shades of Grey thing, next to children's toys. Now, you know, I think, okay, you want to sell it, sell it, but don't sell it next to children's toys. Because then, little Timmy is standing there next to his mum or dad who picks up a copy of Fifty and he goes, what's that? Well, what did you say? You know, I just thought, come on, this is common sense. So I tweeted Tesco. It's a little bit harsh, actually. I just put, at Tesco, shame on you selling Fifty Shades of Grey next to children's toys and took a photo of the display and put it out there. And then, and then the CVN guys and a load of people on Twitter got behind it and all started retweeting it, including photos of where that was happening in other Tesco's things. And then I got a tweet back from Tesco saying, thanks very much, changed the policy, moving it all. I thought that was good, wasn't it? That was a little bit of a breakthrough from Twitter. So that was good as well. Oh, I thought it's been a nice week, actually. So anyway, um, here we go. So how did the Bible um, come together and, and, and why have we got what we've got uh, at the moment? So um, I'm going to try and do this as, as fast as possible. It's 11 minutes past 11. Let's see what happens. Um, I've got lots of photos of things that actually happened at the time. These are accurate photos of things, what were happening in history. Um, now, obviously, um, back in the day, a couple of thousand years ago, even, even before that, people uh, didn't used to write the Bible. They, people would tell stories according to the oral tradition. So people would sit around a campfire and they would wax lyrical about stuff that was happening. It was called the oral tradition. But things really started to get written down. Um, that, uh, you know, Moses recorded you know, the law and stuff around 1500 BC, you reckon. So things, or, sorry, yeah, anyway, things started to get written down in, on different bits of like uh, goat skin and stuff like that. And so eventually you ended up with this. Does anyone know what, what that is? No, well, it's the Septuagint, which is, which is basically uh, the early scriptures, which are, they reckon that uh, 70 Jewish scholars got together and started to write down uh, the Old Testament stories, uh, but actually they reckon it was 72, not 70, but they still named it after 70, because I think it sounded better, because 72 doesn't sound very good as the name of a book. Uh, so um, that there is, is actually a bit of it, uh, uh, and so we have fragments of that, and someone mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls as well, we have stuff like that. But, for instance, you all believe in Caesar, don't you? Yeah, and, and various other, you know, old kind of like Aristotle, and you've heard about all them, haven't you? And all these famous old teachers. So just gonna, this is a very well-known thing here. Uh, this is, this is uh, not new information to a lot of you. But for instance, uh, Caesar's Gallic War, the conquest of Gaul, was written at about 58 to 50 BC. The earliest surviving copy is AD 900, i.e. there was a gap of about 950 years from when, we have, when it happened to when we have the first manuscripts intact. Do you get what I mean? And there's only about 10 of them. And it's actually a classic. You can buy the Puffin Book version of Caesar's Conquest of Gaul, actually. Uh, and like Roman history, look at that, a gap of 920 copies. Herodotus, Herodotus, uh, look, 480, 488 BC, early surviving copy, 900, a gap of 300 years, only eight copies. New Testament, there's only a gap of 130 years for when stuff happened. Uh, 300 years, sorry, AD 130 from AD 40, 
There's 5,000 Greek versions, 10,000 Latin versions, 9,300 others. So that's pretty compelling, isn't it? Do you see what I mean? In terms of these ancient scripts and things and written records that we have of the Bible, there is overwhelming evidence from the ancient documents that we have that the Bible is reliable. For instance, people would read Caesar's conquest of Gaul and think that's an amazing historical record, but actually it's not according to that. It's just a record. But when it comes to the New Testament, it kind of inspires confidence, doesn't it? That we have loads and loads of original manuscripts fairly intact from AD, look, AD 130, a gap of 300 years, and there's absolutely thousands of them. Moving on from that then, we have people like this. This is a photo of a man called Ignatius. Um, <laughs> and, and people like Ignatius, and I'll show you a picture, a photo, a Kodak photo of Polycarp in a minute. Uh, people like Ignatius and Polycarp, these guys were kind of uh, around, some of them like Polycarp, I'll show you Polycarp quickly. Polycarp, there's a photo of Polycarp, he looks exactly like Ignatius, uh, it's a bit weird, really. Uh, but but, but, but they, uh, Polycarp in particular was around in like, almost like in, in whispering distance of Jesus, really. And these were like early church father people. And some of them were incredible because they picked up the teachings of Christianity and they laid their lives down for it. So, for instance, Ignatius, is a, he, he was eaten by lions. There's a photo of him being eaten by lions. It's a bit graphic, really. Uh, I don't think he was, would have been as calm as that. Um, or maybe he was. Uh, but at, shouldn't laugh, really. But at the time, um, you know, these early church martyrs, do you know what? They, these are incredible. They were in whispering distance of Jesus. So, you know, these guys were alive around that time. They were around the early apostles, and they recorded stuff down. So, for instance, Polycarp also wrote to the Philippians in about AD 130, where Paul wrote to the Philippians about AD 40. So, you know, they were all around at the time. But obviously, Polycarp's letter didn't get included in the canon of Scripture, but it's still a very influential letter. These were early church leaders, but they were all around in the very early times of the birth of the church. And they laid their lives down for it. Do you know, the stories are, they were so gripped by the message of Jesus. And this is what I really want you to grab hold of today. They were so gripped that accounts are, they used to die singing. Like when Nero purged the church, in like AD 70, people, people were being used as human torches, drowning them in oil and then burning them and setting them alive. And they used to go to their death singing. They said we couldn't stop them worshipping, even when they were kidding. And it was, a, I mean, it's a, they were so gripped by the gospel, these guys. Uh, there's a quote here from Ignatius, uh, who said, I'm on, on, at his death, I'm writing to all the churches and I enjoy all that I'm dying willingly for God's sake. If only you don't prevent it. Don't prevent it. I beg you, do not do me an untimely kindness. Allow me to be eaten by the beasts which is my way of reaching to God. I am God's wheat, and I am to be ground by the teeth of wild beasts so that I may become the pure bread of Christ. Isn't that amazing? I mean, they knew they couldn't bring down the empire. They couldn't bring down, you know, the opponents of Christianity by normal means, so they're prepared to lay down their lives. If it was me, I'd be wanting to think, get me out of here. <laughs> Just find a way, break me out of here. Uh, but these guys were something else. And then um, we're back to Polycarp. So three things were happening here at this time. Um, people were picking up on the, the, the Septuagint, they were picking up on the things that Moses had recorded, they were picking up the Book of the Law, the first five books, they were picking up on other teachers. 
other teachings, and they basically started to decide what was truth, what was real, what was God-breathed. The spirit started to move, and we've got some really interesting people started to learn about the power of the Holy Spirit, and traditions started to form. And because people are people, people started to fall out with each other as well. And have lots of disagreements which rumbled on for about 2,000 years and can occasionally still happen today. <laughs> so the Holy Spirit stuff, um, then the, you had the birth of the mystics. This is, do you know who this is? This is a man called Simeon. He lived up a tower for 36 years. Did someone say why? Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> no one really knows actually. But what he wanted to do was uh, draw close to God. So um, at one point, he tied a rope around himself really tight, and then his flesh rotted and teemed with worms, and he thought that that was God's provision of food for him. That's true. He was a really mystical guy. And then he thought, well, that's not really working. So he built a tower and sat up it for 36 years. Um, at one point, he lived in a small little hut with a ball and chain around him for 10 years but you think well that's really stupid maybe it was but these guys they were touching something of god they were thinking i i, I just i want to purge all of normal life out of me i, I want to draw close to god and there were some really weird stories around similar of stylites of like um, people would go to him uh for like miracles like people would bring dead people to the bottom of his pole and, and the stories are people got raised from the dead. And people would bring people with like plague-like illnesses. And the stories are they, they get healed. So there are some really weird things happening around this. They were Jesus followers. So, you know, truth is being established. People were learning about the Holy Spirit. And then, you know, weird stuff was happening at the same time. And so I'm now going to really... Oh, there was another one called Daniel. He was a follower of Simeon. And he tried to beat... Simeon's record, but he only lasted 30 years up a pole. But there were a whole load of people. We used to walk around. They used to sit on top of towers. People look at me thinking, what on earth are you talking about? But this was all really important stuff. Meanwhile, the politicians and the academics started to uh, get involved. Uh, so um, here's a photo of a very important event. Um, this was in AD 397, uh, and, and this was the, uh, the third council of Carthage, which is where the canon of Scripture was decided on, not the Council of Nicaea, which a lot of people think it happened at. This was when the early church got together in AD 397, and they took all the writings that people had, all the different books that people had, I mean, this is the really stripped back version, right? And they basically said, you know, to paraphrase probably what was a very big argument, what are people reading most? What aren't we really reading? You know, what are accounts from apostles? when Jesus is around, what seems to have the breath of God on it, and that will form the, the canon of scripture. Now, you're either going to think, oh no, men decided, or that worked. We have to trust that the Holy Spirit is in it, don't we? I mean, the Bible is a phenomenal book, because it was formed over 1,500 years. Did you know that? At least 1,500 years minimum 30 authors some people say thousands of people wrote it uh, you know evangelicals would tend to say 30 to 40 people wrote the bible in different continents at different times in different places 
over a span of 1,500 years, all pointing towards Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? The book that you hold, the Bible, and Hebrews 4.12 says, sharper than any double-edged sword, you know, it's living and active, that formed over 1,500 years with people writing in different nations and continents. That's the book that you hold today. All those old stories, people swapping stories, people writing things down on bits of goat. It all came together, all pointed towards Jesus. And it all hangs together. People prophesying hundreds of years apart, all about Jesus, it all hangs together. And then God leaves this massive trace of thousands and thousands of copies, for instance, of the New Testament. Isn't that just remarkable? And then man gets hold of it. So they had to have this thing, the, the council, because they had to decide, you know, what books are we going to keep and what aren't. So, you know, what? so for instance, Polycarp wrote a letter to the Philippians. Well, should that be in the Bible or shouldn't it? You know, and some books we know as the Apocrypha, don't we? Which are like the extended Bible that the Catholic churches use. And there's like weird gospels too. They're like some people wrote stories like that had Jesus in it healing sparrows and stuff, or raising sparrows and birds from the dead and stuff. And so they got together at the Council of Cartridge and thought, do we want the healing sparrow gospel or not? So they just had to fight it out, and that's what we ended up with. And so that happened. Uh, bearing in mind that around this time too, moving on, um, uh, the Bible was still quite restricted because we didn't have the ability to print you know, and, and as you moved into history too, the Bible was really in the hands of the nobility, you know, or the rich or the priests. So we need to think, well, what happened there? And bearing in mind too that if you were a Christian in the Roman Empire before a certain event happened, you were doomed. You were persecuted. You're like a persecuted minority. Very, very dangerous to be a Christian. But then this happened. This was what we call the conversion of Constantine. And, and he was going to fight a battle. He was the Roman emperor. He was going to fight a battle at Milvian Bridge. Um, and and, and he, he prayed for a sign. We don't know if he prayed for a sign, but he got a sign. He saw the cross in the sky. And he said that if he wins this battle, that he would convert the empire. This is a significant moment, which I also think was a bit of a tragedy. Come on to that in a minute. He won the battle. And now you imagine... One minute, you're like persecuted for being a Christian. Look, it's dangerous to be a Christian. And then suddenly the emperor says, it's cool to be a Christian. In fact, it's not just cool. Help me run the empire. So the priests suddenly became a profession. And they got political power too. And he fused lots of traditions, like when the Sabbath was. And, and like festivals like Christmas and Easter, they started setting dates of things. And the clergy, who were like radical people, who were like in danger of death, suddenly it became a professional thing with power. So church became an acceptable thing as well. People started to wear Sunday best and stuff like that. And I think at this point, it started to go a little bit wrong. Uh, moving on, so that was Constantine, and then you get weird things like this, because suddenly, uh, this is a bloke called Pope Urban. He doesn't like being called a bloke, but he was Pope Urban. Um, 
things like this started to happen, suddenly the church had power. And the Pope was like this infallible, perfect political person as well as religious person. So, for instance, he issued an edict that if you sneezed, you said, bless you. Did you know that? That was Pope Urban. And do you know why he did that? Because of the bubonic plague. So when you sneeze and someone says bless you, you can thank Pope Urban for it. But still, people didn't have a Bible. So do you know who this is? Anyone got a clue? That is a photo of Wycliffe. Anyone heard of Wycliffe? The Bible translator. He said he was a bit more than a Bible translator. Now, bear in mind what I said. People didn't have Bibles. The priest read the Bible to you. He read what he chose. Of the Bible might have been Latin, or they'd read from some original type script, and people didn't really know what was going on. They didn't really understand it. You know, the French nobility had a little bit of French Bible stuff, but there was no Bible that was in language that you understand. Now, you know some people are like, I only read the King James. I'll only have the authorised version. Or I might, I might allow the new King James uh, push. But actually, what Wycliffe did was basically say, stuff, I'm, I'm paraphrasing what he actually said, so I think it was more sophisticated than this. Stuff all that, people need a Bible that they actually understand. So he came up with the vernacular Bible, you know, the vernacular, the way that people speak, we'll write a Bible like that. So that was Wycliffe, and he did that, but he also did other stuff, because the Catholic Church at this time wielded huge power over people's lives. So they used to have things like indulgences, have you heard of that? Like, if you were a sinner, like you might have to whip yourself a bit, or like wear a clamp around your leg, you know, to like cause you pain, or you'd, if you're returning to the church, I'd say you've got to fast two out of three days every week. You know, for two years. And Wycliffe said, I'm not having none of that. He probably didn't say it quite like that as well. He said, I'm not having that. He said, you know, what about grace? We don't want indulgences. This stuff's just stupid. And now the, 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 the church went absolutely mad about that. He was one of the major first reformers. This is in 1382. And they put him on trial, but he escaped. I mean, he was basically, he was allowed to go, but really there's a secret plot. They're going to kill him. And so he escaped and he hid, and he died a natural death. But there's this thing called the Council of Constance in 1415. The church was so annoyed with Wycliffe. Do you know they ordered that his body would be exhumed and then destroyed broken up into pieces and scattered around. They were so angry with him. But then came another bloke. This is a photo of Jan Hus. And this is amazing. This is an amazing thing. He picked up on the story. He was really influenced by Wycliffe. And he started to teach the same sort of stuff. And he got a following. But get this. So they, they burned him at the stake. I'm going to read this to you. When the chain was put about him at the stake, he said with a smiling countenance, my Lord Jesus Christ was bound with a harder chain than this for my sake. Why then should I be ashamed of this rusty one? Quite a phenomenal guy. And then he issued a prophecy. Now this is incredible. Before his death, he said, you are now going to burn a goose. Because his name in the Bohemian language was Goose. You are now going to burn a goose. But in a century... 
You will have a swan which you can neither roast nor boil. Nearly a hundred years after, Luther appeared. Isn't that amazing? And there's a little story about Luther. In October the 31st, 1517, the elector Frederick of Saxony had a dream which was recorded by his brother, Duke John. The dream was about a monk who wrote on the church door of Wittenberg with a pen so large that it reached Rome. The more those in authority tried to break the pen, the stronger the pen became. When asked how the pen got so strong in the dream, the monk in the dream replied, the pen belonged to an old goose of Bohemia a hundred years ago. On the morning, apparently, that they issued the prophecy, Luther was nailing the thesis, the 95 thesis, on the door of a church in Wittenberg. Don't know if the prophecy was true, but it's a cracking story, isn't it? It's amazing. If it is true, like so many of these stories, some of it might be true, some of it might be a little bit of exaggeration, but it was quite important what happened here with Luther because he then started to say, hold on a minute, no more indulgences. What about grace? What was happening was they were reading the Bible. They were actually getting saved. Because it was just like a nominal thing because I blame Constantine. Because he made going to church like a, a good thing to do, a respectable thing to do. These people were reading the New Testament and the Old Testament, and they were meeting Jesus Christ. And this is what we need to get hold of. These guys were young. They were so gripped by the gospel, they were like, I put my life on the line for this. Like, I'm really, really going to confront stuff here. Because this other stuff we're doing, this is just lies. So then this thing happened, which was the diet of worms. Which a diet, it doesn't mean like they ate worms. It was a gathering of people. And, and Luther was put on trial effectively for his life. And he said at the trial, you imagine the fear of this. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. That was his reply when he was put on trial and told to recant his faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, in a very sophisticated way, he said, I ain't having none of that. I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and I'll stand before him and that's it. That takes a bit of guts, doesn't it? So he, that happened and um, he was actually allowed to go but he was also under threat of death but he escaped and continued his teaching and then this guy came along. Do you know who that is? This is a person called Zwingli. And Zwingli was also very affected by Luther and he, he was responsible for about 90% of Czechoslovakia refusing to follow the Catholic Church and following the Protestant version of evangelical faith. And do you know how he managed to do that? He ate a sausage. <laughs> Seriously. You've got to think, what? This is a very, very important moment in Bible history. It's called the affair of the sausage. <laughs> he, he, in 1522, did a sermon called Regarding the Choice and freedom of food 
because you were told during Lent that you could only eat certain things or not other things or you had to fast. And he said, no, 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 no. No, it's about conscience. It's about you before God. So he preached his sermon and then got some Bavarian smoked sausage and ate it. That sausage cost him his life. Really. It's just phenomenal. So these guys, you know, it wasn't just a joke. They were really, really going for it. Uh, and, you know, these, they were all connected. It was all happening around the same time. Then you had a bloke like this, Comrade Grable. You know, we've had some baptism services recently. This was the man who performed during the Reformation the first adult baptism. Cost them their lives. He was about 28 when this happened. 15 of them broke away from the church. These were Swiss reformers. Because you're only allowed to baptise infants. And they were studying the Bible and going, no, 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 no. That's not in the Bible. The Bible says you believe and you be baptised. So he got one of his mates, a guy called Blaurock. And some of them know like old, like, tough countrymen really like farmer types some of them and some of them are sophisticated academics 15 of them and they performed a baptism and it spread like wildfire but it cost them their lives and they formed what we know as the Anabaptist movement we spread through Europe do you know there's constitutions of churches we have a constitution as a church do you know there, there are old records of church constitutions with what to do when your pastor is martyred because the average life expectancy of an Anabaptist pastor was less than a month. And miracles followed them. Miracles followed them. Do you know, some of us here think, do I want to be baptised? Don't I want to be baptised? Yeah, I think I'll be baptised. You need to know that the history of churches like this, where we believe in baptism as a believer, people put their lives on the line for that freedom. Because they were reading the scriptures and saying, I cannot see any other way. If this cost me my life, it cost me my life. And there were some miracles in their martyrdoms too. There were times when they would try to, they would try to burn them and the wood wouldn't burn, so they had to stab them as well. And, well, there was one example. One of the guys had his tongue cut out, but he still managed to proclaim the gospel even though he couldn't speak. That's a miracle. No, the signs and wonders were following these guys. Stories of all kinds of amazing things. You know, I'm, I just think sometimes we don't appreciate the sacrifice and the cost that some people did because they believe a robust belief in the Word of God. You know, we like to choose, don't we? I think, well, baptism, not baptism. Communion, not communion. Don't like worshiping like that. I'm not like worshiping like this. Do I want to go to church or not? Do I like this? Do I like that? These guys had no choice. They were reading the scriptures and they were just saying in my heart, in my head, this is what God says. So I'm going to do it. And if it costs me my life, I'd rather stand with a clean conscience before the living God. Because the word of God is living alive, is active, is sharp and a double-edged sword. Who am I? Who am I to stand against it? It cost them their lives. They were fighting masses of political systems here. And then, of course, there is a problem. 
because in Europe there were only about 30,000 books at that time and it was very hard to get hold of a Bible. You know, people smuggle Bibles now into closed countries and all that kinds of stuff, don't they? Loads of us have probably got multiple Bibles, but back in the day, you know, it was very slow to produce a Bible because you didn't have the means to produce them. But then this happened. This was the printing press. In 1439, the printing press uh, came about um, and, and although it was a slow process, about 50 years after this, they were able with the technology to improve to churn out loads and loads of stuff. So Gutenberg invented the printing press. It meant more teaching can get out there. So you've got this big sweeping move across Europe. The Bible is being produced. The Anabaptist movement is started to spread. People are reading the Bible, actually believing it. The Catholic Church, I'm not having a dig at Catholics. It's just what happened in history. The Catholic Church started to get all antsy about it. They threw on various councils to try and thwart the move of the spirit that was happening in people's lives. That was happening in Europe, and it was also happening in England. And so this came about. Do you know what that is? The Great Bible. Because basically, Henry VIII was lusting after Anne Boleyn, and he wanted a divorce from Catherine of Aragon. Uh, Pope Clement VII refused. So the Church of England was established, and what was true. And then Cromwell decided to produce a Bible because they didn't have a full Bible. The Tyndale Bible was already out, but it was only part of a Bible. So the Great Bible was produced, and Henry VIII issued an order that the Bible had to be chained to the church. So it also became known as the Chained Bible, or the Cromwell Bible, or the Great Bible. But actually, it wasn't really for noble reasons. It was just because he wanted to get a divorce. Um, so that was how that was established. But then there was a fight back, and then Mary came to the throne, and she tried to reestablish the Catholic Church. And so people then started to stand against that because, they again, it was a recovery of indulgences, and, and self-mortification and, you know, people would spend fortunes trying to make the indulgences better. Like, let's say, like, you you had been a sinner, and they'd say you've got to fast for two days. If you, if you drop us 50 quid, we'll let you off. So people were getting loads of money for it as well. And, and these guys didn't like that. So this, this is a picture of Latimer and Ridley. Um, as they were executed, uh, Latimer said, it was amazing, really, Play the man, Master Ridley, will shout this day like such a candle, talking about themselves, by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never, ever be put out. Then, a bit of a gap, because I haven't got time, 1643, Cromwell, and the Puritan stream. You know about the Puritans? There's still echoes of Puritanism in our churches, in our lives today sometimes. Amazing how things, you know, the, the little strands of truth stay embedded. Cromwell actually didn't like worship very much, particularly didn't like organ music, so he ransacked Gloucester Cathedral and burnt the organ. Um, I don't have a problem with that myself, uh, but that's really in 1643. And then, you know, later on you had Wesley, 1738, felt his heart strangely warmed, experienced a conversion, preached 80,000 sermons, they reckon, went 250,000 miles on a horse, probably a few horses, I'd contend, um, and, and miracles followed him. And then, of course, you had the Pentecostal revival. It's got to get that one in there as a Pentecostal in the 1900s, where Evan Roberts started to lead the charge. So you've got the truth, you've got the spirit, you've got the word. And now people are a lot freer to interpret as they want. Evan Roberts, very key this. He said there's four things that were key to a revival. We've seen many people come to faith, confess all known sin, deal with and get rid of anything doubtful in your life, 
Be ready to obey the Holy Spirit instantly. Confess Christ publicly. Isn't that interesting? And so they just took the pure word of God out, proclaimed the gospel, and loads and loads of stuff started to happen. Um, and then that ends up with that, which is loads and loads of different Bibles, however you want them. And some people would say, well, I want the ESV. Well, fine. I want the NIV. Fine. I want the NKJV ESV 64. Fine. I like the NIV 1984. I prefer the 2007. Fine. Basically, just read it. It'd be a really good thing. <laughs> because the cost, the price that was paid so that we have what we have, the freedom to choose, the fact that you can sit here, I'll labor it a little bit, don't want to be baptized, don't want to be. Don't want to read my Bible, don't want to read the Bible. Don't want to worship God. Should I fast? Shouldn't I fast? You know, there are people, we stand on the shoulders of some incredible, incredible men and women of God who really were prepared to make masses of sacrifices. And I miss loads of stuff out because I just don't want to blind you with science, you know, and names. I was just trying to keep it alive a little bit. But even down to like the First Baptist Church, I used to be a Baptist minister. First Baptist Church was about 1600 and something. A guy called Thomas Helwis. Do you know how brave this was? He established a Baptist church in Spitalfields in London. And it was incredibly dangerous because he basically, the, the proclamation was the king. He wrote to the king, you are not head of the church. Jesus Christ is head of the church. It cost them their lives, a lot of these guys. Now, so the heritage we have is rich, really. An evangelical, charismatic heritage is a rich one that came out of huge cost. So I just want to see you had these streams of thinking. You had political division. You had, his, you know, you had uh, church division. We had people trying to grapple with what does the Bible mean. Some people think, oh, I can get power out of this. And then you had the move of the Holy Spirit. You had the mystics. And then the emergence of the Pentecostal movement many, many hundreds of years later. The Anabaptist movement. All these things were moving together to a point in time where we have what we have now, which is freedom here, but still under massive oppression around the world. And there was a, there was a great revivalist preacher called Smith Wigglesworth who said, one day when word and spirit comes together we'll see a great revival so just to finish with really oh, it's a bit different this morning just just to finish with wouldn't it be amazing if we were a church that tried to take the word of god as literally as possible standing on the shoulders of the people who've gone before us but also we're completely open to the mystical side of the faith the move of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit today to change lives without sitting on top of a pole for 36 years. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> Where we see word and spirit come together. But when you hold that book, there's a little thing you could do later. Go home, look at your Bible, have a flick through it. Council of Carthage, 90, AD 397 bunch of bishops got together that's why he got what he got and people laid down their lives the centuries that followed as they read it and as the holy spirit made it come alive and it's still changing people's lives today and that amazing we've got to get on it a bit to let it speak to us when we read it so i think we can trust it because if it wasn't so real 
Why would people have had to lay down their lives? You just think, well, it's just a bunch of stories on a bit of paper. Why are people prepared to die over baptism? Why are people prepared to die over their conversion experiences if it wasn't real? Why would people get so wound up by it? Because you don't get wound up by the Beano, do you? You might get slightly wound up by the Daily Mail sometimes. <laughs> but we don't get wound up by National Geographic. You know, we don't put people to death over stuff like that. You don't find that sort of oppression happening around the world over other stuff that's written, do you? It is so powerful. We stand on the shoulders of some incredible people. So, personally for me, I believe we can trust it, not least because of the history, but also I know that sometimes when I read my Bible, things just happen to me. Uh, a verse impacts my life and I can't shake it off. What is that about? Like, for instance, for me, the first time I ever read Luke 4.18... I was 18 years old. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's not me to preach good news to the poor, set the captives free, recover sights of blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Do you know, when I read that at 18 years old, I knew I was going to be a preacher and tell people about Jesus Christ. I've never read a newspaper and that's happened to me. The Bible is so powerful. And I thank God that in AD 397, the Holy Spirit got hold of a bunch of bishops who probably all had their own agendas and it all worked out. 